Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. While we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Ezra Klein. Uh, We're going to talk about Bernie Sanders, who recently dropped out of the presidential race in a minute. But first, we we really wanted to try to dive into some of the different ideas about how to kind of get out of the lockdown phase that we're currently in as a country. Um, Ezra has been doing, uh, I think, a fair amount of reporting on this recently, speaking to some of the people who've been writing the plan. So I'm just going to ask you, like, what what are the big ideas that are out there right now? Yeah, so I think this is, it is really important that people have a sense of what comes after social distancing. And the more you look into it, I'm going to just say to preview this conversation, the worse it is. This is not a comforting form of reporting I've been doing. Right now, I think there are, there are probably more than this, but there are three or four main plans that are floating around. And I think the differences between them are very illustrative of what the actual binding constraints are. So the ones I want to focus on here are the American Enterprise Institute has a plan. Scott Gottlieb is associated with it. There are three other co-authors um, that has been getting a lot of attention. And I just spoke with him for my um, interview podcast, so I have a good sense of what's going on in that. The Center for American Progress, which is more liberal, they've got a plan led by Zeke Emanuel. Uh, the Harvard Safra Center for Ethics has brought together a working group led by Daniel Allen, who's a philosopher and political theorist, and Glenn Weil, who's an economist and a couple others. And they've got a plan called Mobilize and Transition. And then Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Romer has been pushing a plan built around mass testing that I also want to discuss. But let me give a a very quick overview. So all of the first three plans, um, CAP, Mobilize and Transition uh, at, at Harvard and AI, they all basically look on at some high level a little bit the same, which is First, you go through this very intense lockdown. Um, Oftentimes, there is a decided 
time period for it, a, a good point the Harvard plan makes, is the actual word quarantine comes from the Italian word for 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in the past, quarantines have always been time limited. When you do something like this, in order to make sure it retains political legitimacy, you tend to need to give people some certainty about how long this will happen for and what comes after. Um, they make the point, I think they're right, that it's quite large political failure that we have not done that yet. But so everybody agrees you need a period of, of lockdown. And ideally, that period of lockdown is national. Uh, so CAP really emphasizes this, that you shouldn't be doing lockdown state by state. What you should have is a national lockdown for, an, for a decided period of time. The question in all of them is if you do that lockdown well, and by the way, during that lockdown, you need to not just be slowing the spread of the virus, you also need to be surging primarily two things, uh, testing and surveillance capacity, and then health system capacity. So, you know, flattening the curve and raising the line, as, as people call it. Then the question is what happens after that? And this is where the plans begin to differ. So the AI plan is, I would call it, it's a more modest plan. So you move into this phase two and you can move into phase two when there's been declining cases for 14 days in a state and you've got surveillance and health system capacity up. But phase two is you're slowly reopening businesses. You're trying to make sure the disease doesn't spread. You're doing more contact tracing. You're basically doing things we understand now, but I would call it at like half speed, right? You're searching a lot of health system capacity and you're just like trying to do this sort of hammer and dance uh, effort to like bring it down through mega social distancing and then kind of like halfway keeping that going until you can get back to some sort of vaccine or therapeutic that will get you out of this in a very real way. And the upside of that is that it could work. The downside of that is there's going to be no V-shaped economic recovery there, right? You are you are kind of in this basically until a therapeutic comes along. So here, can we can we can we discuss some some terms here? Uh, a therapeutic is what? So it could be two things. There are vaccines, but um, I was just talking to Gottlieb and he said he doesn't think we should be planning for a vaccine before two years from now. Maybe we get it in 18 months, but you shouldn't bet on that. But there are a series of therapeutics that could be helpful here. So there are the vaccines that will give you immunity. And then there are different classes of drugs that would either help you fight off the virus or just help you um, be a little bit more resistant to viruses like this in general, or, and he taught, and I spoke to Gottlieb who was talking about these, and he talked less about this third category, but we might also just get better at knowing how to treat the virus. We might get better at knowing how to deal with cytokine storms, which are the immune system response. We might get better at knowing. There's some questions about whether or not ventilators are the best treatment for a lot of the, the cases that get very serious. Maybe we un- maybe we come to understand better how to handle this. Right, so the, the, the basic point there is that if we could treat the disease more effectively than the cost benefit on severe social distancing rules shifts, right? Because right. it's like people used to, back in an earlier phase of this, they'd be like, well, you know, like we have the flu, but we don't shut down the economy over it. And the reason we don't shut down the economy over the flu is that it's not that deadly, right? If we develop right. medications and treatments that bring the lethality of this down, then we can sort of let people go about their business. Yeah, I actually think that's a very important way to think about it. So right now, let's say as a baseline estimate, this is 10 times deadlier than the flu, um, which seems about right. If you can make it three times deadlier than the flu, would that be such that people would be willing to take that risk in their normal lives? Right. Maybe, maybe not. 
And one one thing to note here is that this is 10 times deadlier than the flu if your health system is operating reasonably well. If your health system gets overwhelmed, it can become 30 times, 40 times deadlier than the flu because you're not able to keep people alive when they need that extra help. So if you are doing a good job on social distancing, doing a good job on health system capacity, and you get some therapeutics, you can bring both the number of cases quite far down, but also the case fatality rate could become something like 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5. And I mean, we do, we get into these cost benefits about what people are going to be willing to do. Um, I will say something that I think is very notable in those is that in that kind of second phase of like quasi-social distancing, there's not really a good answer for people who are older, people who are immunocompromised. Maybe you and me get to go to the grocery store again more regularly or even get to go to work again, although maybe not. But for like my mom, who is in her 70s with um, lung damage, this could be a long time of a very, very difficult situation. And so I, I want to note that these are not, these are not really great solutions, which brings me to, to Cap and to, to Safra and to Romer, because all of them have an idea for how to get back to something that looks more normal more quickly. But in each case, the idea requires some pretty big leaps. So the Center for American Progress, they really emphasize uh, very, very heavy ITs. Like what they want to do is basically have something on everybody's phone that is doing instantaneous contact tracing. So it knows who we're coming into contact with through geotagging. And, you know, you'll try to make sure you can handle this on the privacy side. We'll talk about that in a sec. But so if somebody then does go in and test positive for COVID-19, what happens after that? is you can like call up their data and everybody who's been in contact or been near their phone is maybe the better way to put it, is going to get like a little ping that says, you have come into contact with COVID-19. We need you to self-isolate or quarantine or whatever it is. And so you're talking here, and the Harvard plan has a version of this too, a massive digital surveillance architecture. Now, you've seen some of this in South Korea, you've seen some of it in Taiwan, but we have a very different culture, political culture than those countries do. We don't trust the companies that might do this. CAP wants to give this power and this data to an association of state health officials, but whether or not they would be able to use it well, whether or not they would be trusted, particularly at a time of very high political polarization, I, I think it's a real open question. But if you if you can imagine getting over that hump, then you're talking about something where you're basically using mass instantaneous digital surveillance to be able to respond so rapidly to outbreaks of the disease that you can handle pretty much on a case-by-case -case basis once you get the number of cases quite far down. And this is, as, as I understand, I mean, this is pretty heavily based on the idea that South Korea has sort of got this under control. Right. I mean, that's the sort of the inspiration for, for, yes, for this. The, ca the, cap, the cap plan is very clearly inspired by South Korea. Right. And so that means more testing, more digital surveillance, with the idea being that you could let the virus sort of circulate without it spreading exponentially if you could do this instantaneous, large scale um, contact tracing. Yes. That brings me to the Harvard SAFRA plan, which I would say the primary way it differs. So that's got a lockdown through June 22nd. And they're really explicitly taking wartime mobilization as their both political and philosophical and economic, for that matter, inspiration. And the idea is you want to treat this like a war. So 
massive, massive investment in getting testing up to, I think it's billions either a week or a day, um, and similarly to CAP to IT tracing. But their big, one of their other big ideas is that anyone who is shown through serological testing to have had the disease now must Im- enroll in a medical service corps that is able to activate with the idea that these folks have immunity. And so they can go do things that are difficult um, or dangerous that other people can't do. So it could be food delivery or working in a health system or whatever, but basically you're dealing with something almost like a medical draft. Once you are shown to be eligible for the medical draft, you must be in the medical draft to be sort of, to, to be able to move into these next phases. Um, they also just have this massive rise in testing and a, a, a similarly massive rise in IT tracing. And their idea, the way they frame this is that as a comparison to what else might happen here, if you take this period and you use it to spend what they estimate to be two to three trillion dollars on building an IT, like a pandemic surveillance system, like nothing we've ever seen in this country and massive testing and over time, um, vaccine production capability, like nothing we've ever seen in this country. Well, look, there's going to be a lot of economic loss along the way, but at least we will have spent that money in a way that stimulates the economy and builds things for the future. Both probably stimulates innovation in, in, in the public health system, but also just creates a much better public health system altogether. What I would say on both the CAP and the Harvard plans is that they are assuming a lot, in my view, not necessarily wrongly, but, uh, but, but just still assuming a lot in terms of what people are going to be comfortable with and what they will do in terms of surveillance. The level of surveillance they are imagining at a time when people do not trust this government um, and do not trust the other people who are in opposition to this government it is very hard to imagine Americans sort of flashing a QR code every time they walk into a building or a bus the way it is happening in China. Very hard for me to imagine Americans being willing to download this kind of thing onto their phone explicitly. You can say, by the way, in Facebook and Waze, we already have many things like this and we're making it explicit. But it can be very difficult in politics to make things like that explicit and say that somebody is going to be using this data, even if it's primarily voluntary, to tell you what you have to do from now on. And they're going to know everybody you go near. So I'm going to talk more about this as we go on. And I want to talk about the Romer plan for a minute, too. But what I do want to just like frame here is that in all of these plans, a thing to really note is there is no normal coming. There is like a world of mass digital surveillance that is going to be very strange and would require um, real differences in the way we see the government or someone, some kind of player here and each other, um, something that we've not really accepted before. Uh, Romer is different than all this. He believes that that kind of IT tracing is not something people are going to be willing to do. So what he wants to do is expand testing to a level that like nobody else is considering. So 22 million tests every single day, such that everybody in the population is being tested every 14 days. And he's got really interesting modeling that shows that even if your tests have a high false negative rate, doesn't matter because people are getting retested, that you can basically just use testing to be your contact tracing. You can use testing at that level to know what is happening with everybody with a high level of granularity. Now, you could have little outbreaks in there and he's trying to think about ways you would manage that if it began to happen. So you probably need some level of contact tracing. But the problem here is that nobody I talk to seems to think we are anywhere near or even necessarily can get to the testing capacity for 22 million a day. Maybe we can, right? Again, in a wartime mobilization effort, sometimes we're able to do things we didn't think we could do. But right now we're facing, we stood up some testing capacity, Gottlieb was saying, 
by activating basically every lab that wasn't doing this. But now we'd have to build new labs, build new platforms. A lot of the supply chain materials we need, like reagents and swabs, are already facing shortages. So how quickly we can get that manufacturing capacity stood up is sort of anybody's guess. We are having a lot of trouble going to millions a week. The idea that you get to tens of millions a day, if you could, I think it's probably the best of the plans. But also how you would administer those millions of tests a day or tens of millions a day is a, is a big open question. I wanted to describe Romer's plan in, in a little bit more detail because I because I do think it's fascinating as a as an exercise. You can look, he he's got these um simulations running on, on his website. And you know, he's not a public health expert like at all, right? Scott Gottlieb ran the FDA, uh, Zeke Emanuel, who sort of took the lead on the CAP plan, is like a big thinker in, in public health. Uh, Paul Romer is a, he, like, he's a brilliant guy, but not a public health person at, at all. But what, what he shows, or at least purports to show, I, I think he's convinced me, though, is if you test people at random at the scale he's talking about once every two weeks, and then you isolate people who test positive, that that actually really constrains the scope of the outbreak very significantly, even in the total absence of other public health measures. Um, and it it sounds wrong. You know what I mean? Like, separate from the question of, like, could you do 20 million tests a day? To me, at least, like, it, it intuitively sounded incredibly wrong that if you just randomly tested people once every two weeks and then isolate them if they're sick and let everybody do whatever all the time, that this would control the outbreak. But it it seems like it really does. And that even if you couldn't quite get to the the, the 20 million a day, if you could pair them with some of the milder social distancing steps, like if people wore masks and we didn't have like movie theaters and large sports events open, you could get somewhere with it. But it's also like, it's a total assume a can opener plan. There is a more modest version of it that I do think that, that Romer has been talking about that I do think is worth taking seriously because I don't think it is out of the question at all, which is you could do that plan, but do it for health workers, city workers, public safety workers, transit workers, et cetera, food service workers. So there are a certain set of professions that are, one, extremely important to keep operating, but two, extremely vulnerable to this disease because of the number of people they have to come into contact with. And in addition to all the other stuff you may want to be doing, like people wearing masks and some amount of social distancing, if you were able to stand up capacity to be doing that aggressive, constant testing for them, you'd be able to keep that foundation of both the economy and the public health response running much more effectively. And like you, I'm convinced by at least some of Romer's arguments here. And I think that is something that we should really have as a goal. Right. Um, so then looping back, I mean, I I, I do really want to emphasize, I, I was thrown for a loop, honestly, when I started looking into the Harvard AI and, and CAP plans, because they are so different from what I think is implied. When the president says, like, we're going to open up the economy again, he's obviously not being specific at all in terms of what he means. But like the image that you have in your head is like, OK, life uh, becomes a close resemblance of how it was in February 2020. And under these plans, that's not happening. I mean, not just because of the intensity of the digital surveillance, but um, they're calling for an indefinite ban on very large gatherings of mm -hmm. people for, you know, a, an indefinite, like, I forget exactly how Cap described how they want airplanes to work, but it was like, 
you wouldn't really want to do it. And it means that significant sectors of the economy, all spectator type events, right? Like movie theaters, art stuff, sports things, all kinds of conferences, right? Really leisure tourism travel. Like people might go to visit family members under these plans, but like they weren't like super clear on some of the small details, like do the casinos in Las Vegas open again? But the conditions under which all this stuff would be operating are onerous enough that even if they are in some sense open, like business will not be doing very well. Like people don't want to sit around in masks and be temperature gunned 12 times a day for fun. And it really, it's sobering in terms of thinking about what kind of economic recovery measures we need, because I still see these investment bank forecasts that are like, oh, we're going to be shut down in Q2. Probably if the virus gets under control, we come bouncing back in Q4. And then you look at these plans and they're like, they're not saying, well, we're going to be back to normal in Q4. They're saying like, I, I don't know exactly what they're saying. Like, you'll be able to get a haircut, I guess, is the upside of these plans. I, I actually think looking at what Cap says about travel restrictions is really instructive here. And as you say, very sobering. So what they want to do is for the, the number I see in here is 18 months until herd immunity has been established. You have airline passengers must download the contact tracing app, confirm no close proximity to a positive case, and pass a fever check or show documentation of immunity from a serological test. The TSA must adjust screening procedures to ensure physical distancing and limit airport terminal access to ticketed passengers only. Um, there's a bunch of stuff about sanitation here. Subways, buses, and transit stations must limit the number of passengers to 50% capacity. Buses need protective separation for bus drivers. Those might all be good ideas. In some ways, I think they probably are all good ideas in terms of this virus itself. But as you say, like those are not ideas consistent with an economic recovery, certainly not with a V-shaped economic recovery. Those are, uh, those are not ideas consistent with normal as any of us understand it. Those are ideas consistent with I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know what to call it, like the age of coronavirus. Um, Scott Gottlieb, in our conversation, he talks about the 80% economy, uh-huh. that like 80% of the economy is going to come back. But like 80% of the economy is, <laughs> like that's good. That's better than 50% of the economy. But it's not great. Um, and I'm not seeing a lot of people believe you're going to get around. That. I mean, this is why Paul Romer has what, like something Romer will say if you talk to him is that, we need to be thinking really differently because if you look at these plans from an economist perspective, they are all still a kind of disaster. That if you let this happen, we are just going to be in an unending economic crisis. And like people are not looking at this enough from the economic perspective that it's all like we need to do something about the, the public health problem here. But we also need some plan for how the economies are going to work again. And by the way, this is all taking place in terms of an incredibly shattered global economy where like particularly emerging markets as this rips through are going to be coming on and offline at times, like different places are going to be going in and out of trade and border restrictions. Like it's just when you think forward, sit like 12 months in the economy, like this is wild. Wait, I mean, you know, 80% economy, 80% is one of those weird numbers where it's like, eh, that's a B minus, like maybe it's not so bad. Um, But that's, we did not see a 20% shrinkage in the size of GDP at the worst moment of the Great Recession. So we're talking about an economic situation that is worse than the low point of the Great Recession 
proceeding for 18 months after a couple months of lockdown. And that's really, really bad, right? And this is why I, I, I've been on a, on a journey here where I read Romer's plan. I was like, that's a fun mathematical exercise, but like, this is dumb because we're clearly not going to do 20 million tests a day. Um, and then I read these other plans and I was like, wow, and started to started to loop back um, to, to what Roma was saying, and even to develop some sympathy for the now abandoned view that the UK government originally had, that like it wasn't worth doing these lockdowns at all, um, simply because if what it takes to sustain tolerable infection levels is as severe as what some of these plans are calling for, I'm just, I'm not really sure that it will stick. Oh, yeah. I think I think that we haven't even talked about the political difficulties of all of these plans are imagining worlds where states are pretty routinely going to be moving in and out of lockdown, right? You've, you've got these triggers, like, for instance, in the AI plan, it's 14 days of consistent case reduction. That's, but that's one of the things that will get you out of phase one. But you might have to go back into phase one. And, I mean, Donald Trump, for instance, is clearly desperate to get us out of lockdown. Like, he's not going to go back into it in a couple of months, like, deep into an election, or at least he's very much not going to want to. There's a great line from the economic historian Adam Tooze, which he was telling me in terms of these ideas to just like let the virus rip through the system and like millions die, but the economy keeps running. He called it an unreal form of realism, that it sounded like realism, but it, but it, but it wasn't. And I, I also had that same feeling reading some of these plans, like the ones that feel more realistic, they also have this like feeling of unreal realism that, well, are people really going to like are, are people going to accept that? Are they going to live through this? Like, it's not clear what options they're going to have, but this is really bad. Nobody is, even if you take these plans and in every single one of them, you are assuming something that is politically very difficult to imagine, this sort of massive nationwide IT surveillance architecture, 20 million tests a day, um, or just the political capacity to be moving us in and out of social distancing smoothly and constantly while doing a lot of other things very well simultaneously. Like, even if you assume any of them can happen, and I don't think that's like an obvious assumption, these are miles ahead of where any political leadership is nationally, at least in terms of what we're seeing from this administration, um, and miles ahead of where our preparation is nationally. So even if you assume you get over that, you're not dealing with anything like normalcy. You're dealing with a very strange, awkward, like the like limbo life that we're all going to be in for an, for a long time. It's a very scary thing to contemplate. Like I, you people would hear me a couple of weeks ago on the weeds talking about how we needed to talk about what comes after social distancing. Well, now we are, and I thought the answers were going to be comforting to people. Look, there's a plan. But I think if you look at the plans closely, they're very scary. Yeah, let, let's take a break. And then I, I want to talk about some of those kind of institutional details here. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. 
They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So one of the things that that struck me about these plans is that they they require a level of um, coordination that I don't want to say it's impossible, but it, it doesn't seem evident exactly because things that even just the idea that in Gottlieb's plan like well a state can exit phase one when it's had a consistent 14-day decline in caseloads right the way like our government works there's no authority that can impose that rule right and there's no uniformity i mean every day on on every evening on twitter i chew over uh, a million different data visualizations that different people produce of of this sort of COVID-19 stats, and then people argue about what they mean. And one thing that always comes up is that, like, the states are testing at different rates. So it's like, whether you have declining caseload is in part a function of how vigorously you're testing. Uh, people who want to game the system will have some ability to do that. Um, we would have to create, like, a whole different national architecture of this. Uh, then the CAP and AEI plans, they both mention, because it's it's top of mind to decision makers, that the New York City and Washington, D.C. metro areas both exist across multiple states. And you need coordination. It, it matters, you know, what's happening in Maryland, what's happening in Virginia. You need a framework to work there. Um, same thing, Philadelphia metro area cuts across into New Jersey. It's a less of a, a sort of problem uh, in the West and, and the South, but Chicagoland extends into Indiana. And you'd be sort of making this stuff up on, on the fly in terms of how to make these calls. And the White House doesn't appear that they are doing anything. On, on these fronts. I mean, I don't know how Gottlieb feels about what the, the Trump administration is is doing. He he worked with them, I guess. But I sort of tune into these press conferences for the past couple of days, and I keep waiting to hear, like, okay, here's how we're thinking about this. Here's what we're working on. And, and it seems like they're not really working on anything. So Dave Wallace-Wells had a good piece at New York Magazine the other day that was just titled, There Is No Plan. 
And he was talking about some of this. And I've been like mulling over that piece a bit in my head as I've been reading the plans because like one version of thinking about this is there is no plan because Donald Trump and national political leadership have not settled on a plan and begun implementing it effectively, both in terms of preparing the American people for what it will require and in terms of actually getting it stood up, doing the national surveillance system and so on. And there's another version of saying that that is there is no possible plan, right? There is no plausible plan here that actually leads to a good outcome. And I'm leaning a little bit more towards that second view here, that we're we're in something that is, you know, this analogy is being used a lot, but we're in something like a war in the sense that it is quite zero sum um, or negative sum, actually more to the point, which is like, this is just going to be bad. There are plans that can make it like more or less bad, or there's a lack of planning that can make it more or less bad. But when I imagine the alternative universe here, where it's not Donald Trump, it's President um, Pick Your Person, who like has a set of good ideas for dealing with the virus. Like, there's no really good ideas on the table here now, and I think we'll probably talk about this as we move into the next segment. You can imagine much more exciting and inspiring ideas for how to rebuild society in the aftermath of the virus. There are things you could be doing and saying and preparing for that is about using crisis as an opportunity for the future. But in terms of the next year of American and global life, it does not appear to me that there is a plan that anyone would recognize as successful. Like, there is no plan that anybody is going to recognize as it gets us back to normalcy, to a good economy, at an acceptable public health cost. It almost seems to me that we're in a bit of a trilemma there. Like, things can be more normal, but not with like, and maybe more normal um, with a good economy, but not an acceptable public health cost. Or they could have like an acceptable public health cost and like a good economy, but there's going to be no normalcy. I mean, I'm sure that one's possible. I agree with that. Like these plans, reporting this did not make me feel like, okay, we've got an obvious winner and I'm going to just like do some takes um, about how we should do that. But also like this is an element of where you do, I think, need leadership, right? I mean, what we've seen here is that calling up uh, a couple people at the top think tanks to put together plans. And I, I don't want to deride their work because it's it's careful. It's interesting. These are interesting ideas. Um, but the answers that they came up with are not they're not great. I've been I've been sort of reading and, and thinking about the the American Civil War lately, in part because um, Civil War battlefields are very empty right now, and it's someplace you can go with a five year old. Uh, but the the Lincoln administration faced this problem where like there wasn't a great answer to the problem of like how do you subdue the Confederacy, and they had to really like work hard at getting different people in the room and you know, talking to more people and firing some of the generals and promoting some other people and like grinding away at it. And that's the opposite of Donald Trump, right? I mean, he is the ultimate like quick fix guy and there isn't a quick fix available here, right? It's it's not that he hasn't like loaded up the correct PDF, but clearly somebody Somebody who I think is closer to the realm of public health and the practicalities of government needs to like get Paul Romer into a room with some other people and I think start bearing down on the question of is there some way to make this work like in a in a detailed way because I think these other plans that rely on 
digital surveillance and contact tracing. If that's the best we can do, that's the best we can do. But they're they're really bad as solutions. Like that's it's not an outcome anybody if they understand what it looks like, is going to be satisfied with. And I, I think they're just like, there There has to be some kind of, over the next few weeks, when everyone agrees we're going to stay in, in some kind of lockdown, like, we need some kind of, like, Team B work on, is it in fact possible to drastically scale up the quantity of, of tests, possibly by doing wartime mobilization type of things? Because otherwise... Like, man, I don't know. Like, are we going to lurk through a a two-year depression? I think the question of the need for detailed visionary leadership, detail-oriented visionary leadership, is probably a good time to take a break and move to the 2020 race. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So, Bernie Sanders, not running for president anymore. Um, he It was a weird end to a to a campaign uh, simply because, you know, he, he'd fallen behind it and the virus made campaigning itself sort of impossible. I guess I wanted to sort of reflect back on this race. To me, something I think about is way back in, in February of 2019, some of the people at, at Jacobin, the, the socialist magazine, asked me to um, discuss with them the, the prospect of a, of a Bernie Redux. And I said what I thought was like a super sensible suggestion, which is that Bernie should formally join the Democratic Party and make people uh, happy about that. And they all kind of just like 
they laughed that off. Like that was self-evidently absurd. And I, and I spoke to some senior people on his campaign right when he was launching. And they said that was like so unthinkable that like they weren't even going to bring it up in a meeting. And looking back, I mean, I don't want to say like I could have won this race for Bernie. Everybody should listen to me. But it's it's a kind of remarkable thing that in a race where Unlike in 2016, this was not a protest candidacy, right? He was really running to win. And at one point, it looked like he might win. He, he wasn't willing to do, like, literally the simplest thing you could do to make yourself seem more acceptable to a mainstream political party. There's a lot in here. And, and I, was wanna, I always think it's good to be careful discussing these candidacies right at their end because a lot of people are grieving. Um, Bernie Sanders is someone who thrilled a lot of people, and I think for good reason, and seeing his candidacy end is hard, right? The ends of candidacies are hard um, for everybody. They were hard for Warren supporters. Uh, they were hard for Buttigieg supporters. Um, you know, they'll be hard for, it's currently being hard for Sanders supporters. And so I don't know exactly. I think you're right about that. I had a very, I had, I had what I thought was a really telling interaction with Brianna Joy Gray, um, Bernie's uh, campaign press secretary, just like two days before Sanders dropped out. And the backstory to it is that I had on the Ezra Klein show a podcast with Elizabeth Warren about coronavirus. And when I like promoted the podcast, I said that talking to Warren is like entering an alternative reality where we have political leadership proportionate to the scale of the crisis we're facing. And I do urge people to listen to that interview. I think she's fantastic. Now, in my head, when I wrote that tweet, that was quite obviously a comparison with the actual political leadership of the country, Donald Trump, right? Who I think, who, like everybody else, I've watched on press conferences and it's a scary performance. But Gray jumped into um, my mentions and, you know, talking to some Bernie people and she's like, ah, you know, like Bernie's out here, like got all these great policies for coronavirus being ignored. Like, and she said about me, like for some people, this was never about the policy at all. And so I wrote back to her, you know, because she knows this, I've been inviting Bernie Sanders. Like that one that wasn't a tweet about Sanders at all, but I've been inviting Sanders on the show for months. Like I pitched them on a profile of Sanders as legislator. Like they've, like I would love to sit down and talk with Bernie Sanders, including now about coronavirus. Um, and instead of like trying to set something up, like she's like trying to start a Twitter fight with like somebody in the press who is like very open to covering her candidate's ideas. And she wrote back that she thought that was transactionalism, that I was offering, uh, like, the, in order to get good coverage, like, you needed to do an interview. And I, I tell this story because I thought the invocation of transactionalism there was really useful. There's going way back on discussions of left politics, this distinction between purists and pragmatists. And purists often feel that the kinds of give and take that you need to do politics are just dirty. That what you want is people who really stick to principle, who don't waver, who don't compromise, who don't join the Democratic Party, which is full of wavering and compromise and impure principles and people they don't really like. And they always end up in tension with people who see politics as this game of pluralistic compromise. Uh, and one of the things that I saw in the Sanders campaign was that they had defined this down at times to an almost absurd level. Like in this case, his press secretary was telling somebody who runs an interview show that inviting her candidate onto the interview show was transactionalism. When like, I've covered Bernie plenty during this campaign, probably more actually than I covered Warren. Um, but to be on the interview show, you have to come on the interview show. Like I don't have a, I don't have a way around that particular uh, difficulty. Well, and of course, you, you hype up 
the interviews on Twitter, right? I mean, what, what started this was your tweet promoing the interview, yes. right? And of course, everybody who has an interview show, after you interview a guest, you don't do a promo tweet that's like, listen to this guy is totally worthless, right? Like, you can, and that's not transactional. It's just like, that's the show. And if you want to be on the show, you got to do the damn show. Yeah, but to take it off of me, because I don't think I'm the even the, the most important example of this, what, what I mean what I mean in telling this is that I think this was suffused throughout the Sanders campaign. So there were a bunch of tweets. I think one of them was from Dave Cleon about how there was a level of like what we really saw here was a level of democratic political establishment unity that was completely unheralded in the modern era. And one that's just literally untrue. Uh as you've noted many times, like Bill Clinton um, and the senior House and Senate leadership, they endorsed Al Gore in 2000, um, like early in the primary to show who the Democratic establishment backed, whereas that never happened in any way for Joe Biden. But also there has been this broad feeling on the Bernie Sanders team and among Bernie supporters that what happened with Pete, Klo uh, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar was somehow dirty pool. Like it was this weird political masterstroke as opposed to just like politics. I am sure Joe Biden promised things to Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar that I don't know. I've like stiffed around on that reporting and have not been able to figure out what those things are. But yes, like clearly there was some set of conversations there, but that isn't like cheating. That is actually politics. It's, you know, trading things for endorsements, trading things for votes, like Bernie Sanders would have to do a lot of that as president. And I say all this because I think one lesson here, I'm somebody who's very sympathetic to a lot of the, the Bernie Sanders agenda and probably much more sympathetic than I am to a lot of the Joe Biden agenda. We actually need a transactional left. Like we need a left that doesn't see the work of doing politics as dirty work, uh, that does not see dealing with people who they disagree with as somehow creating impurity among them. And this was not just a problem for like a couple of podcasts. Like this was coming from inside the house. It was coming from inside the Bernie Sanders campaign. I always thought, Matt, that you made really good cases for Bernie Sanders, but you always emphasized the pragmatic side of him you often saw in Congress. And when I look back, actually, on some of the work you did and like how, how much I sort of bought into it because I, I thought it was correct, one thing that just strikes me in retrospect is that I think it overstated that a little bit, that that was clearly true in Bernie, but Bernie contained multitudes. And in the campaign, he did not make that part of himself dominant. He did not manage his own campaign and instruct his own staff such that like that was a campaign they were running. Instead, this other part of Bernie Sanders that had always been at war within him, that didn't really like the Democratic Party, that didn't want to make these um, concessions, sort of won out. And like in the end, they just weren't able to do, like they were able to do the rallies but they weren't able to do the politics that they needed to like signal to people who weren't already in their orbit that like this was a candidacy for them. Wait, I mean, th this is, I, I think, the the tragedy of this campaign is that I, I, I had this take that has now like not panned out about how you should pay a little less attention to what Bernie Sanders says and a little bit more attention to what he has done, that he, you know, operated as an effective mayor in a divided city council in Burlington, that he has passed bills, that he has critically, like, I think the most important thing to know is that, like, when Barack Obama needed Bernie Sanders's vote for, like, tepid half measures to get over the finish line in the Senate, like, Bernie always voted for it. There's no legislation that was like spiked because Bernie Sanders had some totally like an inability to count votes or something like that. 
And then I totally got why he did not emphasize that as he was like gaining steam and he was building his his momentum and building his donor list and, and staging his rallies. But then in February 2020, right, when he looked like he might win and people were freaking out, that is the time to try to lower the temperature, right, to try to soften your rhetorical stance, to try to reassure longstanding members of the Democratic Party that they want you to be president, right? That even if you're not their favorite, that like they'll be happy with your administration. Instead, he did that that tweet that's like, the Democratic establishment can't stop me, you know, rather than like, we're going to win and we're going to beat Donald Trump. Um, he he critically, you know, you were talking about were there promises made under the table to to Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar. And, you know, one question I always had about that is like, yeah, like that that's politics. Like, what did did Bernie Sanders do anything to court their endorsement? Like he at, at this moment when he was in the lead, he starts talking about how he's definitely going to pick a vice president who is a Medicare for all supporter. When it could have been a chance to like hint around that maybe he would unify the party with a VP from the more moderate wing, right? And like, what would the what would the harm in that have have been? There's a there's a great new translation out um, of uh, Max Weber's uh, seminal essay on politics of vocation. It's called Charisma and Disenchantment because it it collects a, a couple of his things. And what he what he talks about, you know, at the end is. The difference between a politics of personal conviction and a politics of ultimate responsibility. And Bernie leaned so hard into personal conviction in the closing days of this campaign that the important thing was to hold your line and to surround yourself with other people who have always been pure of heart. And it just doesn't work. Like it's a it's a great stance for like a, a preacher or the head of a small-time activist group. But, like, you just, you don't get to be president that way. Like, big legislative changes are not made by unwavering guiding to your North Star until until the end of times. Like, it, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. And it's, it's frustrating to me. Every time I say something like this, I think, like, Bernie supporters hear me as, like, being critical of the idea of fighting for universal health care or something. But it's it's not. It's like I I want it to I, I want to see something happen on these issues. And you have to you have to be better at politics. There's a very fundamental question when a political campaign or project you're part of loses. And that is, were you failed or did you fail? And there's often a discourse around Bernie Sanders that he cannot fail, he can only be failed. That the Democratic establishment rigged it against him or the media rigged it against him or or, or whatever it is. And to, to be honest, like Bernie Sanders clearly was very disliked by like Chris Matthews and Morning Joe, but he's not disliked by Chris Hayes. And um, Joe Biden is not a well-liked figure in the media. He's like exactly the kind of figure the media doesn't like uh, in, in many cases, which is that he's like not that like stumbles over his words and doesn't reach out to them. He's like done, as far as I can tell, no podcasting at all. Certainly for like young media figures, he's not, he's a known figure, but he does not have relationships. Like I can say that with some certainty. And he, like in, in Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders was not facing 
like somebody that the establishment quote unquote loved. Uh, like there's that all the political science term, the party decides like in this case, the party eventually settled. Um, it wasn't that they united around Biden early and just adored him and he was super exciting and, and so on. Like Hillary Clinton had a lot of democratic establishment support. Like Joe Biden eventually like won, um, which is just a very different situation because I like, think a lot of what's on the Sanders campaign is important. And also because I want to see the people who are on that campaign continue in politics. I think it's going to be really, really significant whether the voices from it end up dealing with the question, uh, dealing with the question from the perspective of whether they failed in some way and have lessons to learn or whether they simply were failed and have more people to add to the enemy list. And on the one hand, there's a lot of people in the Bernie Sanders orbit. And so the fact that some of the most confrontational voices rise to the top of these conversations, right? We are talking much more here about what, say, the press secretary on the Sanders campaign thinks and what Faz Shakir, the campaign manager, thinks. Um, and in some ways, maybe what Faz Shakir thinks is more important. But in another way, like if these are the voices that dominate on social media that are are the signal um, of, of where this should go, like it really is going to be important what direction they take. And like what I've been seeing from them mainly is like the enemy list got longer, right? Like it turns out in truth, the Democratic Party will never let them win. Whereas what I see from campaigns and movements that do well is that they look at something like this and say, okay, we didn't win, but we got somewhat closer than we might have. So like, what did we do wrong? Like, what is your after action report? Like, where did you fail? And I mean, we you, you made the point, Matt, a second ago about the possibility of a unity VP pick for Bernie. And I think some people might listen to this and say, look, that's ridiculous. Well, Ronald Reagan, who's considered the, the guy who brings the Barry Goldwater revolution to fruition, does exactly that. He picks George H.W. Bush, which would functionally be like Bernie Sanders picking Joe Biden for VP. Like Bush was the moderate alternative to, to Ronald Reagan. And like that's part of how Reagan unifies the party around him and takes the party over, right? That's really important here. Like you're not giving away your convictions, giving away your principles. You're, you're making it possible for them to, to, to win. And so like there's a lot of good in the Sanders campaign. I think he had a lot of good policies and, I, and and he speaks to something really important. But something I think you just really see if you look at the difference between him and some of the other candidates or some of the other parts of the Democratic Party is the Democratic Party consistently, like in its establishment forms, looks at Bernie Sanders and asks the question, what can we learn? Like, how can we absorb this? What critique is here that we that we can hear? And not all of them go in that direction, some counterposition against it. But as everybody says, like the reason Sanders is moving the Overton window on some things is because a lot of Democrats want to like absorb some lessons and take in some of that energy. I hope the left is going to do the same thing here. I mean, I think actually Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, if you look at her statements in the past couple of months, you really see her trying to do this. Like she's very careful when talking about Elizabeth Warren. I think she had something almost exactly like this point where she said that a good organizer doesn't blame people for not joining. They blame, they try to figure out what it is that made the people not want to join. And so I do think some of the the, the rising left is seeing this clearly, but also there are a lot of... I think there's actually going to be a real schism in the left here between the people who want to take lessons from this and keep building inside the Democratic Party and the people who want to use this to reject the Democratic Party um, entirely. And if the left is going to win and help the people it wants to help and the people that I want to see helped, it's going to have to find, like, learn some of these lessons about just how to do day-to-day transactional politics, like how to care more about winning in terms of your goals as opposed to beating the people you see as your enemies. Yeah. So then just to flip this, though, like what I still see as the thing that mainstream 
Democrats, as you say, like they've been they've been watching Bernie and they've been watching Bernie's youth support and they're they're trying to see what they can learn from it. But I think there's a thing that is being said loud and clear by younger people's support for Bernie Sanders that Democrats just don't want to hear because it's inconvenient. And it's that a lot of people view the way the Democratic Party, not the Democratic Party's position on specific policy issues, but the way the Democratic Party functions with kind of one foot in the camp of being a labor environmentalist social democratic party that is speaks for the working classes and and social movements and it has this other foot in the camp still of being a mid-century american brokerage party with no real ideological content such that it is very accepted and, in fact, expected that senior members of Congress will step down and become lobbyists for corporate jobs and trade associations, and that people, after doing a stint on the Hill or in an administration, will not cycle into other jobs in progressive politics, you know, because they get bored or want to change a pace, but will cycle into corporate work and then be kind of welcomed back, right? So that you can be sort of, you know, Rahm Emanuel, I think is a great example, right? That like, he can write an article for The Atlantic in which he's like a Democratic Party wise man, rather than a guy who's on the board of hedge funds, or, or something like that, because he's both of those things, because the Democratic Party is betwixt and between. And I think like a lot of people, you saw this with Hillary and her speeches, and, 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 and it comes up over and over again, see that kind of setup as more corrupt and more corrupting than Democrats want it to be, you know, because it's it's. It's nice to be able to think that you can have uh, a sort of a nice career in progressive politics and then also run the communications department at McDonald's and then stop doing that and go on TV to say what you think about the primary. And it would be a tough choice for the party to really refashion itself as a ideologically committed entity. But in a sort of polarized politics era, like, Democrats are the left party in America. And so people who are, you know, acculturated into that as supporters, as voters, they they want it to act like a left party, not like a kind of hoo-ha business party. And, you know, Biden is not going to, like, bring that transformation. That's like the opposite of him and his career and his circle. But I, I feel like there's a, a reckoning coming along these lines and that transcends, like, tactical and strategic questions about Sanders's campaign. I think that's all true. And and I think a, a good place to take this, although I know we only have so much time, is that we're talking about Bernie here because he just dropped out and this will be one of the last times we get to talk about his campaign on the show. But there's a real question just in the very immediate future about Joe Biden. Um, Biden needs to try to reach out to some of these people. You wrote a piece about how in many cases he's just not going to be able to, but not going to be able to and shouldn't try are very different things. And um, I have a piece today about how one of the things you're really seeing with coronavirus, which is going to throw somewhere between like 15 and 35 million people off of employer-based insurance, is just how bad the employer-based insurance 
program is. Um, like what a deep original mistake in our healthcare system building um, health insurance around your job actually was. And I've been like beating this drum forever. But one thing that I think that Biden should do, his plan is not good enough right now. Like it was, you know, it's a good backstop plan. Like his public option is a lot stronger than anything that got considered in 2009 to 2010, but he wants to reinforce the current system. He will not let an employer buy into his public option. He will not let an employee take the money the employer spends on their healthcare and buy into his public option. Like unlike say a Pete Buttigieg, he's really not trying to build a path to like a more integrated national healthcare system. He's trying to do backstopping of the system we have. And I think he's not going to go all the way to Medicare for all and nor given the campaign he's run should he. And I think, many of the political concerns about, say, like canceling 160 million insurance plans are correct. But he should go a lot farther, particularly given the way coronavirus is changing the conversation. And he should be explicitly looking for places where he can like rebuild parts of his agenda to absorb some of these critiques, right? Like he can say, yes, the left is right. The employer-based system is bad. Your boss should not control your health care ever. And like he can do something about that critique without going all the way to single payer. He can expand. I mean, his climate plan, I think, has gotten a worse rap than it deserves, but he can expand his climate plan in important ways. Uh, Dylan Matthews has a good piece today about it started as 11 policies Joe Biden should steal from his, not steal, should absorb from the campaigns he beat. And he actually had to bring it down to nine because two of those policies had actually already been absorbed by the Biden campaign. And Biden has already, in a very clear signaling maneuver, said that he's going to agree to, he's going to absorb um, Elizabeth Warren's bankruptcy plan, which has been like one of the biggest symbolic disputes between the two of them. So this is a time, if I were on the Biden campaign, where, look, they may not win over like the most hardcore Bernie supporters, but there's a real opportunity for them to show that they were listening and are substantively expanding the agenda to respond to like what are genuinely good points that Bernie Sanders has been making. And while I like coronavirus, I think has created a sort of flight to safety dynamic in politics and Biden feels to many people safer than, than Bernie and revolution. It's nevertheless the case that social democracy and a policy agenda built around social solidarity makes a lot of sense right now. There are places that Bernie goes that maybe like Biden shouldn't, but there are places Biden doesn't go that he really should. And like Bernie Sanders dropping out and having a lot of disappointed people behind him. Just like it, like Bernie Sanders' his campaign sometimes like was too focused on beating other Democrats to actually win the Democratic primary. Like Biden's campaign should not be so happy that it has won the Democratic Party that it forgets it needs to do work to unify the Democratic Party. Well, and you know, this healthcare point though, I think that really speaks to like the ambiguity that I was pointing to because there's sort of two narratives around the Medicare for all dispute right, in in the Democratic Party. And one of them is, look, this is a question of political prudence. You don't need to enact a big bang Medicare for all style transformation in order to get everybody covered. And it'll be politically easier to, you know, structure some kind of a, a glide path that, that, that works it out. The other narrative is, single payer healthcare is an idea that works, only corruption um, and the clout of industry would explain why somebody doesn't back it. And both of those things are true, right? There, there's like important truths to both of them. And a issue for Democrats is that so many of them operate in the overlap of that space, right? Where they will both say, no, I have reasons of political pragmatism for not embracing this left-wing idea. It's not that I disagree with the principles, but then they're also like cashing checks from the industry. 
right? And then it always raises the question of like, are you talking about the objective limits to what can be achieved? Or are you the objective limit to what can be achieved? And the difference between a small gauge and a narrow gauge public option, even though it's clear to me that like most people are not that invested in this, but that really cuts to that point, right? Is are you trying to create a public option that is limited in as many ways as possible to provide maximum reinsurance to to existing stakeholders that they won't be disrupted? Or are you really trying to be as expansive as you can about this innocuous sounding idea? Hey, there's a government plan. You can sign up for it if you want. No big deal. But like actually a a very big deal, right? And and Pete Buttigieg had this plan that was it, they got they got lumped together with Biden as like the moderates, quote unquote. But like actually, his plan, if you did it, would have put you, I think, pretty close to a single payer system. And that's very different, right? From like trying to be politically shrewd versus trying to sustain the status quo. And Biden, I think, is just too much on the status quo side of that line. Uh, I think that's correct. And so, look, like, as with everything, both sides are ultimately going to need to learn lessons from each other. I think the left needs to become a lot more comfortable with just the day-to-day transactional work of politics and stop seeing that as somehow dirty or impure. And at the same time, Biden and, and other parts of the Democratic Party, they need to absorb just some of the ambition and principles and purity and just the the capability to imagine transformation, the capability to imagine a future that is radically better than the present. Like, I think that's really important that Biden and Sanders, they got grouped in this restoration versus transformation framework um, or restoration versus revolution framework. But the truth of the matter is coronavirus has blown all that to bits. Like, we are in an era of unbelievable disruption for everything we talked about in the first half of the show. Like the future is not going to be like the past. Like we are, we are not in any way wiping the slate clean, but there is crisis and there is at least some opportunity here. And the moment calls for somebody who can imagine, who can somehow deal with two impulses in the electorate that I think are going to both be present and be contrasting. On the one hand, coronavirus is going to create a desire for safety and a fear of disruption, right? If you're clinging to what you have and you're afraid of what you might lose, somebody's coming and telling you they're going to double your taxes or take away your employer-based care, like that may not go well. Like one reason Biden has been getting a bump from coronavirus is that while some people look at him and say, you know, this guy's not being that present, like I'm not hearing from him that much, what I'm hearing is not that exciting. He's understood to be a steady hand and a capable manager at a time when people want that. And on the other hand, like you're going to need enough vision to rebuild a shattered economy and in many ways, a shattered country in 2021. And that's going to, you can't do restoration there. Like you can't go back because what's what was there is going to have been blown up in many cases. So you need to be able to like see beyond that. So by like, you need to be able to have the vision to rebuild and to build something new. And like, that is the lesson in my view that Biden needs to be able to learn from, from Bernie and others that yes, like Bernie's been on this forever. Like he's wanted to do the same things for 20 years. Like you can argue, like, I, I like that's a good thing, a bad thing. It doesn't really matter. Point is that, Scale is important right now. And one thing that Bernie had was he had scale. And it turned out that a lot of people in the Democratic Party and in the country were looking for scale. And then at the same time, like you need safety. If Biden is smart, he will somehow try to merge those two together in a way he hasn't yet. 
Indeed. All right. Um, so with that, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot to, uh, to think over. I hope you uh, read all these PDFs about the different plans that are out there. And if anyone has a, has a better solution, uh, please, please tell, tell the Facebook group. We will tell the world. Uh, the world definitely could use some, some better fixes right about now. Uh, beyond that, uh, thanks, Ezra. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs>